M&K Talk YA now presents Ruin of Stars, Part 2, From the Mask of Shadows Duology, by Lindsay Miller. MNK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished the Mask of Shadows duology by Lindsay Miller. We read the last half of the second book in the duology, which was called Ruin of Stars. Which means we've read it all. It's done. Oh my goodness. I don't even know where to start. Okay. I was going to say we should start to see who won our deal. Oh, yeah. We had an over-under bet on whether <laughs> Sal would kill more than six people or less than six people. And you guessed more, and I guessed less. And what what's the outcome? I, I don't even know if I can keep track. <laughs> I feel like there were... So, Sal killed Riparian mm-hmm. and the North Star. Yes. So, that's two. And then... They also killed, like, a lot of guards. That's true. That's where I got confused. I was trying to go back and figure out how many people Sal killed. Because even during the um, assassination audition, they killed a few people. Like, eight. Yeah, I think they killed five in the first book. I mean, five people. I think they killed two contestants, the two that they were targeting... And I feel like there was a fifth one. I feel like they had five, like, deaths on their hand at the end of the first book. Oh. But I think we were talking about if it was six more or not. Oh, I thought it was six total. I don't know. Well, now I'm confused. If you said six more, then then you win. I feel like a lot of people died, but I am... Okay, because mm-hmm. even that last scene... So. We're definitely skipping ahead, so if you haven't finished reading, turn us off right now. <laughs> but um, in that last scene, when Sal is going after North Star, mm-hmm. I was confused by how many people were dying in that fire. Oh, good point. Maybe a ton of people died in the fire, in which case you would win. <laughs> because it, it sort of felt like, it seemed like there was a bunch of nobles in the room. Some ran. At the end, like in that final room. But none of them did anything except tried to get away. But nobody could get in. So could anyone get out? I was I was kind of confused about who all... Perished. Because it, it felt like the guards couldn't get in. Yeah. But it also felt like the other nobles ran out of the room. So I don't... Maybe they were just elsewhere in the house and the guards couldn't get in the... I don't know. But I, and I feel like multiple people died in the fire besides North Star and Opal. Then you probably won. <laughs> I don't know. I oh, we can call you. it a draw. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know what an over-under was. Remember, I just like, yeah. was excited. <laughs> okay. Basically, a lot of people have died. Yes. But uh, many of them for good reason. Right. Okay. So what should we talk about first? Okay. So at the, en- at the end of our last episode, Sal had just not drowned when <laughs> Maude tried to kill them. Right. And by tried to kill them... She knew that they could swim, so she wasn't actually actively trying. She was pretending to try. Yes. Or whatever. Um, okay, so then what happened from there? 
Then Sal, is that when Sal went to Elise and told Elise that Riparian? Yeah, and Elise admitted that she was actually working for Ruby and the Queen, and she was set up to be um, robbed, and then to report back on which thieves were the best, so they could be invited to the assassination, the uh, the assassin audition. So that was kind of interesting. That was interesting. Yeah. Part of me was like, I totally get it, Sal. You were lied to. That's upsetting. And the other part of me was like, with everything else going on and all the lies you also told, huh? (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. And I think through the book, like at the end, we find out that Sal's really not as upset about the lying as they are about not being trusted. Right. About Riparian. And I think that felt more honest. And I get like the initial reaction about the, you know, the lie and like kind of doubting that's a story that they've been telling themselves about like who they are and how they've come to this position is that they kind of did it on their own. So and now hearing that they knows. were manipulated. Right. Mm-hmm. And also it made me wonder if the queen kind of knew more about Sal than she led on to. Like, were they trying to find someone who was Nacian to essentially take out their biggest opponent? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so here's, I think my complaint about the book is kind of connected to what I think I talked about liking about the book at the beginning is I feel like there were a lot of different characters with different motivations and Mm -hmm. I was a little bit disappointed that we didn't see more of them play out like once Mm. Sal got up to Erland we basically we kind of saw Elise and Maude but we basically didn't see anyone else from back like we didn't see Nicholas we didn't see the queen we didn't see the other left hand we didn't see yeah all these people who also had like their political motivations and all this stuff and I was kind of like what are they doing like what were Emerald and Amethyst doing while all this was going down and Nicholas like Nicholas Nicholas. wasn't really in the book at all and he was supposed to be like the spy master I was so curious to learn more about him yeah so I think that would be and and even um you know all the way up till the end and this happened before in the first book when Sal talks to the queen initially but they had respected the queen for so long and then they were essentially like disappointed with her and I sort of get that but I also feel like it like was this big relationship point and it didn't feel like there was enough like I didn't feel like there was enough negative relationship there for it to be like I don't know I guess I mean the queen allowed people to get away with destroying Sal's entire nation so I guess that's maybe a big enough reason but it sort of felt like yeah. I was expecting more back and forth, kind of, or, like, meeting in the middle or compromise with the queen when they realized stuff overlapped or, or mm-hmm. something like that that we didn't really get. And then same with even on the other side. Um, so we eventually kill all five of the names that we were looking for, not all necessarily at our hand, but right. um, especially the running into winter again. It was, like, a fun action scene, but I was expecting kind of more discussion Mm. about Elise and about I don't know I just was kind of expecting more of like things coming to a head especially after what had happened Mm -hmm. at the end of the first book well I kind of I liked though that we did get some discussion with Winter and um Riparian right before they both died where Sal was kind of confronting them and being like this is why I'm targeting you you let my country die and I kind of liked how both of them defended their actions and it really made me think of like questions of morality and evil versus good and right and wrong because both 
at, until the very end, both Winter and Riparian were like, we knew the shadows were there, and it was either they were going to take over Erland, which had 50,000 people, or they were going to take over Nacian, which Nacia, which had, you know, I think it was like 35,000 people, and, and 10,000 made it out. And so they were kind of like mm-hmm. weighing um, which, was, which would be the worst casualties. Um, and they both said, like, I would have done anything to protect the people that I was hired to protect. Like, that was my job, so I was always going to protect my own people. And so, like, I still don't ex- think it excuses what they did, but it was just interesting to hear their perspective and how, like, staunchly they stood by their decision, um, like, even right up to the end. They didn't really admit any wrongdoing or have any remorse. They were just like, no, we did what we had to do. Yeah, and I guess I liked how it it did end up being like a public trial kind of environment. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not 100% judicial in nature, but but more or less a public announcing of their crimes and they had a chance to defend themselves and whatever. But I guess it felt more personal to me throughout the rest of the book. So it seemed, even though it kind of made sense and I liked certain aspects of it, I also was like a little bit disappointed from my like Sal perspective of like I've been chasing winter Winter pushed me out of a building, like, you know, all this stuff. And then... He did all this horrible stuff to Elise. Yeah. And even Elise, I mean, I'm glad that she didn't defend those people. And she she talked about it and addressed it. But I, I sort of felt like this is one of the rare times in the duology. I feel like it almost could have been expanded a little bit more. I felt like it was almost too short, too fast. Mm. Like, we were going... And I think that's where I was having trouble keeping up with it a little bit sometimes because actually a ton of stuff happened in these two books and there's a ton of characters and a ton of yeah. different motivations. And while I think that they, um, like, it's touched on in a lot of interesting ways in a lot of different places, I didn't necessarily get the depth that I wanted. I would agree with that. I, and I think it's fair to say, um, you know, normally we say we love duologies, but I could have done with more too. Just because I know I said last week that what I really wanted to learn about was Sal's history with their mom Mm -hmm. and their brother and their sister. And we did get glimpses of it in this book. Um, We got like brief little mentions of their life together as a family. But I really Mm -hmm. wished we had more of that. Just because I feel like if you have a background where you see your main character with their family and see how special that, that time was together then you kind of have a mm-hmm. better understanding of the depth of their motivation. What they lost. And what they lost, yeah. yeah. It just, it, I think it helps you appreciate it a lot more. Um, so I kind of agree that was maybe like a little bit of a missed opportunity for me to kind of see Sal really interacting with her family. Um, so yeah, I could have done with, um, you know, a bit more. Well, and similarly, and again, this is where I always think it's like a good problem when I have all these questions about like wanting to know more about Mm -hmm. characters and their backstory and how things work and, you know, relationships and side characters and all that stuff. Like, it's a good thing because I'm interested enough to want answers to those questions. But um, I think you mentioned it when we were talking about the first book, wanting to see the shadows. And so in the second half of this book, we actually did see the shadow magic stuff came back and um, it was a little bit different now. But I didn't feel like we got enough because, again, it came in the second half of the second book Mm -hmm. and was only a portion of what we were addressing there. I think I also had some questions about that. So I like that they talked about how, like, the new shadows were made out of with kindness instead Mm -hmm. of hate and that, like, made them a little bit different. I think big picture it addressed what I needed to know, but from a, like, 
oh, there's magic in this world again. And like, oh, how did like just from a curiosity standpoint, I wanted kind of more in depth about like Moira and what was going on in these like dungeons before. And, you know, what happens to the shadows now that they're not prisoners and what, you know, and just because they made quote unquote good shadows if the magic is back, does that mean anyone can now make bad shadows too? Like, I just, I kind of had these unanswered questions about, oh, if magic is here in this world, like, what does that mean for everything else? I agree. And I feel like it was really interesting when we did see Moira come back and we learned that she's the last star. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, her whole thing where she's like working in the laboratory and, you know, Waylon's forcing her to make shadows. I I loved that whole scene and that um, explanation but it, it almost felt like she was just telling us everything that happened. And like I wanted to see it instead of just hear it. Exactly. Yep. But I'm glad we did discover why they were testing the ears of the kids. because And it took me a while to figure this out, too. Because they did say that um, yeah. once they ink the ears, if the ink remains and their ears are whole, they can't use magic. But if the ink eats the flesh, they can. And that's why the rune was eat. And then that means that these children have still have magic in their mm-hmm. bodies. And I was a little confused about, like, some they wanted to make mages and some they wanted to make shadows. And Yeah, I was confused about that, too, like, how you could tell. Especially because it still seemed like they were essentially just, like, grabbing kids from the street or mm-hmm. that they knew a little bit. But it seemed like it was something you could easily tell if they'd be good at one or the other, right? Well, I think it was something like they said people who had never used magic and whose parents had never used magic and who had never been touched by runes could still use magic. So that makes me think that Mm -hmm. those people are the mages. And then um, Adela was, oh no, Dimas was saying that his sister had a rune placed in her heart so she couldn't use magic. So they were looking for, I think, children who had runes placed on them and those would be good, good shadows. Like, they had too much magic in their veins to be mages. Yeah, and that's where I was getting a little bit... I could, I'm could. i not as clear on who could be a good shadow. I agree with who made a good mage, and I thought that was really interesting because, again, it's Erlen basically let this whole country be devastated, mm-hmm. and they're the ones who hadn't really practiced the rune magic before, so those kids whose families he destroyed are were Waylon's best hope for recreating the right shadows you know so I, I love like that poetry or symmetry or mm-hmm. whatever there um but I was a little bit less clear on who was being shadows because it also seemed like they were taking um like Erlen people like it seemed like a lot of people were disappearing and I think a lot of them were either failed shadows or oh right died other ways so maybe it just took them a while to figure it out but I was a little bit unclear about that and then this is another side character thing I would have loved to see so we found out so Demas at the end of the day is basically a political prisoner, right? Mm-hmm. He did answer a lot of questions for us, but he obviously had some questionable moral code, and I think he regrets it, unlike a lot of the bad guys in the book. But um, we also found out that his mom was basically the second shadow volunteer. Right, after Moira's mom. Yeah. So, so I was kind of hoping that we would see Demas interact with... Uh, we heard his sister visit him one time in jail, but I kind of wanted to see him like interact with his family that he did all this for mm-hmm. and either have yeah. them like be like, it's okay, you tried your best, or have them be like, dude, we weren't worth it. Or I don't I don't even know what I wanted to see in that relationship, but I just like kind of wanted that moment at the end, I think, for him. 
And that closure, because, like, he was such a fascinating character Mm -hmm. with how he was caught kind of between those two forces. Um, And, you know, how we learned that everyone in that laboratory, they were forced to do what Waylon wanted, or else he he said that he would kill all the other Nasians that he had, you know, populated around. But then they didn't know where where the others were. Um, And so, yeah, to kind of see more into his mind, I think, would have been nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was another piece where, like, there actually was, like, so much going on and so many clever things happening, but it almost, like, was happening too fast for me to keep up with. Like, Mm -hmm. I'd realize, I think you mentioned this um, in a a different episode, too, where, like, when you, like, pause and think about it, it, like, makes more sense than when you're reading it or something. And, um, like, even the way Winter did that with the Nazian people and, like, separated them and didn't let them talk to each other and, like, that form of control. Like, there's actually a lot of, like, really interesting some really negative but still yeah and like politics going on and like clever smart people and I I enjoyed that aspect of it so again I almost feel like we could have made it a trilogy and got into a little more depth on stuff because even just finding out that shadows existed could have been like the end of the second book or something and with a little more detail and then like that whole because that final scene too where um or not final scene but where Moira and Sal join forces and they're like, I'll be the knife and you be the, what, that whole relationship. And they kind of executed a plan that they didn't even have to, I don't know, it felt like all the pieces were already there. They're just like, okay, let's do this thing, even though they just met. And so, you know, they could have played with that or it could have maybe played out a little bit longer and been a third book, but. And I also wish that we had gotten to see the shadows a little bit more because we do see like Namrata at the end Mm -hmm. and she's like, this rotting blood bone corpse thing yeah but she's still alive in a way and so i and i was i was interested in that because i was like once they are shadows and their soul i guess it was like their soul separated from their body what like what do they look like how how do they think how do they feel do they still have emotions like yeah how controlled are they versus how independent are they and I, i wanted to see more of that because I mean, I loved how they finally, when it's time to kill Winter, they just give him to the shadows. Like, I thought that was kind of a fitting end. But I wanted to know more about, like, whether the shadows were being controlled or if they, like, had consciousness of what they were doing. Well, it did seem like, so everyone who was at that, like, public execution was somehow related to someone who had been part of the shadow experiment in some way shape or form so you did see some of the audience members like recognizing a shadow person and Mm -hmm. so yeah like what what did that conversation look like or you know yeah a little bit more just like yeah how human are they still or how does that yeah I agree there was a a kind of poetry in how the North Star Waylon left winter in his place like he knew that Sal was coming for him and he left winter there as you know, mm-hmm. a barrier almost. And it was just, it was very poetic how it really reflected what he did with Nacian in the shadows. Like he put someone in between him and danger in order to take on the risk for for themselves and, and protect himself. And it was just like a miniature version of what happens with Nacia. So I, I did like that ending. And I think he was a really good bad guy. Like he, ha- yeah. he was a very clever, like even near the end. So after... He switches places with Winter and then abandons Riparian and then <laughs> he's like signing a treaty so that if someone decides to kill them, which Sal still does, um, they would be a war criminal to like protect 
himself and just like I almost Mm -hmm. he felt and maybe this is intentional but he felt like he was just out of reach all the time but he was such an interesting bad guy that I almost wish we had either interacted with him more or gotten his perspective more often or something but I found him really interesting yeah and for being the bad guy he was absent from most of the story like we just heard of things he had done or things he was doing like behind the scenes and knowing he was orchestrating them but we did get very little actual interaction with him which is true yeah Whereas we did have some good scenes with Riparian and Winter, where we kind of like, True. you know, had a showdown. <laughs> oh, man. Did you believe Riparian when she said that she didn't actually try to poison Elise? Because that was like the moment when Elise really shifted alliances and was like, you know, no, Sal, I believe you. Lena is a monster. She tried to poison me. And then Alina was like, no, I was trying to protect you from Wayland because he would have had you killed. And I was just trying to put you to sleep to protect you. And I was just... I didn't really know how I felt about that and if I believed her. So again, this is where some more flashbacks might have been helpful to see their relationship play out a little bit more. But I personally Mm -hmm. think that Riparian did have a twisted but actual affinity for Elise. Like a protection thing, like wanted Elise to follow in her footsteps. So I kind of believed her, but I don't think that that was enough if that makes sense yeah like i don't i kind of don't think riparian was trying to kill elise but i also she did poison her <laughs> you know <laughs> or i don't know. like yeah okay maybe you didn't try to have her actually die but like that doesn't make up for all, anything at all right. <laughs> like right. literally any of it <laughs> and i think she probably i'm just i just don't know if she had true affection for her or if she was just using her yeah and i guess it's a little bit hard to tell because again we only saw them interact a little bit and we saw elise's perspective of that relationship a lot more than we saw riparians but i read it more like it was a mutual thing because i also and i think we talked about this because the fact that riparian even was one of the like last two standing says a lot i think because it seems like the society was very uh you know if you're a female you're supposed to behave this way if you're a male you're supposed to be this way and if you have to fit in one of these two buckets and just, you know, like very strict in Mm -hmm. their interpretation of a lot of things, especially around gender and stuff. And so the fact that she was a woman and was able to like rise to power, I did kind of respect her a little bit, but we didn't even see enough of like what that meant or what her relationship with the North Star was like. Yeah, especially since um, it was revealed in one of the past books that she and who was it? She and wasn't she and Waylon lovers? Oh yeah, I think I think that's true. She like and that's how she knew one of the other names of the Caldera. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm like super curious about her relationship with Wayland and how like she was essentially his second in command near the end. Um, and how did she get there? Mm-hmm. Like how did she rise to that position? How did she prove herself in a country that we know is so backwards in its thinking? It would have been cool to see that. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes her, again, an interesting villain because it's like she can see that the country is wrong about their views of women, but she can't see that they're wrong about their other views. Or you know what I mean? Sure. Like, it's yeah. like she can, she, she's like twisted certain things to apply to her, but not, so I just, I feel like it would be really interesting, again, a backstory or something to watch um, Elise and Riparian, like before all this went down or... Yeah. Because didn't she also, Elise said that she, like, stood by her when she explained to her father that she was attracted to both men and women? Yeah. Yeah, so she was, like, helpful in that aspect and was, like, positioning herself as an ally. And so, 
it's just it's just kind of strange that she's still working for Wayland after all that for the North Star. Yep. It's like very contradictory. Which I don't mind. I mean, people are complex, right? Well, that's why I think it's really interesting. I'd love to hear yeah. more about how she ended up that way. Because I think that makes... It's a richer character development. I, we've talked about this before. We like villains that are, yeah, that are, like, you can kind of relate to or you can kind of see how they ended up the way they are. Totally. And I feel like, I feel like some of it's probably that sense of, um, you know, well, I worked really hard and I got here, so other people should, you know, not realizing the privilege that she had too, probably. Yeah. And, like, kind of some some of that stuff maybe, but... But I think it would have been interesting. And I wanted to see more of what Amethyst and Emerald were doing the whole time. I know I miss them. I really miss them in the second half of the book. But I did, I loved the epilogue where, so Sal killed, quote, Opal in the fire as well because Opal would have been tried as a war criminal. So they allowed everyone to think that they had died and entered the ruby competition and then revealed to Amethyst and Emerald that it was <laughs> Sal, though they're not going by Sal anymore. Um, and I, I, I thought it was kind of cool that they still came back, but they also weren't Opal again. I, I just, like, love that whole thing and thought mm-hmm. that was pretty pretty fun. I thought that was great, too. And also, like, what a great way to reclaim a new identity yep. that still feels like you. Because Sal mentioned at some point, like, Sal is dead, yeah. you know? They were killed when Nacia was destroyed, essentially. But they also had to kill Opal because, you know, Opal fulfilled their mission. Yeah. In, in the new world, they couldn't survive. And they talked about using, like, Ruby's mask. Because Opal's mask, they had always had the names. Right. That they were hunting in it. So Ruby's mask was, like, a clean slate. And and also, like, the fact that now they get to be the protector of Moira, who is the last star of Nacia, who yep. was... Um, one of Sal's idols growing up, really. So I think now mm-hmm. that they have that responsibility, they still have the security of being the left hand, um, this position of honor where that also really matches their identity. It's like, you know, they're not called Lady or Lord. They're called Honorable Ruby. And so I just, yep. I really liked that whole thing of Sal, like, reclaiming their identity and coming up with a new one that still felt um, authentic to them. But could allow them to make a fresh start. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was cool. Did you think of a fan name? Uh, nope. <laughs> Did you? I always uh, forget about that. I know. Um, okay, so we've got the left hand, and we have the Nastians, and, and the we shadows. have shadows, and we have mages. I'm just saying words right now from the book. Yep. <laughs> And we have assassins. Mm-hmm. I feel like something fun with the left hand, like playing, like is there another, like could we be the pearls, even though they're not the part right of the left hand? hand. <laughs> or, or yeah, the right hand or the, <laughs> the, oh, what's it called? Can we be the phantom limb? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm saying no to that. couple steps removed but I kind of liked it um okay what do you got what do you Um, got I don't mind assassins okay I don't mind assassins either super smart but all right if we can or could we be um well maybe that's a little much to be stars or the runeless the runeless (laughs) or I don't know I'm weird (laughs) I love these we shouldn't allow me to be a part of this game no this is exactly why we should (laughs) 
Um, oh, could we be something with the Carnival of Cheats? Yeah, the... What were they? The, the acrobat assassins. Cheaters. The, cheater, <laughs> the cheats. The cheats. The, uh, could we just be like... Well, there's more than us, but... You know how they all, they all had... Or the masked numbers? The ma... The, oh, oh, the two, oh, what were they called? The masks. I kind of like the fans being called the left hand, too. What if we were the left fans? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's perfect. I like that, actually. The left fans. <laughs> Okay, great. <laughs> That's like dad joke level So name. dad joke. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Whew, that's always stressful. Uh, okay, and what was your favorite scene from the book? We always talk about that. I know. So I think what I'd want to see most, just again, you kind of touched on this, is the uh, the shadows, like seeing how they worked and how they were set up and how, you know, what they look like and what the people look like would have been really interesting. So as far as like what mm-hmm. I'd see in a movie, it would probably be a scene with the shadows. But as far as my actual favorite scene, I think it would be when, um, what's her name? Adela is distracting the guards and mm-hmm. Sal is about to go in and burn the house down. But I just loved hearing about how Adela was like lighting the knife on fire or the sword on fire and jumping across and I don't know why just that visual in my mind was like I was like this would be cool to see and like wearing Opal's mask yeah the having the two different versions of Opal's mask on the two of them and yeah that was really and even just the way that hideout was described like I mean it probably was just like a wood cabin to some extent but it was described there's oh it was I really like the way it was worded but something like it was not painted, but it was basically designed to look exactly like the forest. So I was imagining it more like really blended in to the cat. I don't know, just something about that scene just I thought would be really cool to see. What about you? What would you want to see? Um, I really liked the scene where Sal caused the carriage to crash that was carrying Riparian and like corners her. Oh yeah, that was a good one. I just really liked that visualization of like this horrific carriage crash and just like Riparian being pinned under it and Sal like really wanting to kill her but knew that they couldn't because they needed, you know, Lena needed to answer for her crimes. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that would be like a cool action scene. Yeah, that would be, that was good action. Agreed. And there was more dead people there. So yeah, I think we're above six for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you win. <laughs> Um, so my research a little bit was inspired by the epilogue. Okay. So I also really liked when Sal faked their own death to make sure they wouldn't be held accountable for killing Wayland, but also just trying to have a fresh start. So I researched some people who faked their own deaths. Ooh. I think we've... I couldn't remember if we've done this before. I think we've talked about people who were mistaken for people who were dead or something before. I think we've done something kind of tangentially related, but I'm excited. Tell me more. I didn't remember any of these stories. Okay. I'm sure that there's more than we've talked about, even if... It's true. (laughs) Um, Okay, so the first one is um, Juan Peugeot Garcia. So this man was Spanish, and he was a double agent working for the Allies during the Second World War, and... So if he was a double agent working for the Allies, does that mean he was pretending like he was working? So he pretended or... to be an ally. He pretended to be an ally who had turned traitor and was working for Hitler, but in secret he was still working for the Allies. So he supplied Hitler a lot of information that was not true at all. Gotcha. Okay, good. And his greatest moment was he convinced the Germans that the D-Day Allied invasion mm-hmm. was going to take place 
in the far north of France instead of in Normandy. Awesome. And so he, like, diverted a ton of German military resources to this fake location that he said D-Day was going to happen in. Um, and and because of that, um, D-Day was um, considered success. a success. Yeah. Because, yeah. Um, so he, be, because he had such a pivotal role and because he had deceived the Nazis for so many years, he was... Um, he knew he would be a marked man for any surviving Nazis after the war. Fair enough. <laughs> so he traveled to Angolia in 1949 where he died from malaria. But in reality, he moved to Venezuela where he opened up a bookshop and lived to a grand old age. That's awesome. I know. Oh, man. That, that, would, that would be like, what an exciting life. Like, be a double agent and, like, make a real difference in the world and, like, be on the good guy's side and then fake your death and move and open a bookstore like i know that guy's my hero now but like what stress i can't imagine i would be terrible like, at it can you imagine you think we think our jobs are stressful he was like literally lying to hitler knowing that at any moment he could get caught i think this podcast is stressful and there's literally <laughs> no consequences we can edit out anything that i mess up but i right. still yeah oh man uh, yeah i'd be terrible okay so um, another famous case was the cabinet minister and British MP John Stonehouse. So on November 20th, 1974, John Stonehouse left a pile of his clothes on a beach in Miami, and he um, convinced people that he had gone swimming and was either drowned or was eaten by sharks because they just saw like a pile of his clothes and hmm. no trace of him. But... The truth of the matter was he went to Australia to start a new life because he had run into really serious financial problems in the UK, but then he was recognized by a bank teller in Australia and he was deported back to Britain and he was sentenced to seven years for fraud. How was he recognized? Well, he was the prime, he was the um, Oh, oh, MP. right. I guess it's someone that is recognized yeah. a lot. At first I was just thinking it was some guy and I was like, he went to a different country and just someone in the bank recognized him? <laughs> like, that's crazy. But That's I guess. the thing. Like, if you have a very recognizable face, like, that's probably not going to work. Well, that's when you need an evil twin to blame things on. Right, right. <laughs> um, okay, this is interesting. So, you know, the novelist Ken Kenzie wrote uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And Mm -hmm. he was arrested in 1964 for possession of marijuana. And he knew that the offense would get him a prison sentence, so he faked his own death by leaving his truck on a cliffside road um, and then also left a suicide note. And so the media started talking about how, you know, this great writer committed suicide, and the media picked it up and ran with it. And meanwhile, he had fled to Mexico in the trunk of a friend's car, Um, but then decided to return to the U.S. eight months later, and as soon as he arrived, he was arrested and sentenced to six months in prison. That's not even that bad. Yeah. Um, the the police force kind of suspected that he had staged his own death. (laughs) Um, but then he continued to, um, write after his release until his death in 2001. So it ended okay. So that's just, just making me think, like, what would have to be bad enough where you would fake your own death? Like, going to jail for six months, it's not like I want to do that, obviously, but, like, I wouldn't want to, like, cut off ties with my family and risk everything else to avoid jail for six months. I think it depends on, 
like what you were accused with. So like let's say your worst nightmare happens and you were framed for like murder mm-hmm. and you didn't do it but the evidence was against you and you knew you wouldn't win and you knew you were going to spend the rest of your life in jail or I don't know put on death row or something I'd probably fake my own death and run away. Yeah. It's just that would be so hard like you'd have to like to do it successfully you'd have to like literally cut tight like you couldn't tell your parents, your you sister, your husband Banjo. You have to literally start over. Mm-hmm. Banjo, no. I, I would take Banjo. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we would catch you. You have to leave Banjo is the moral of the story. Well, you know what? I couldn't take her to jail either, though, so. That's true. Yeah. Um, okay, this last one. There was a British prison officer named John Darwin, and he rowed his canoe out to sea on the east coast of England in 2002, and his canoe was found a few days later, and he was pre- presumed dead. However, he had run into serious debt issues after buying two houses and then decided that the only way out of his debt was to fake his own death so his wife could collect on his life insurance policy. Hmm. Um, But then he was kind of an idiot, so... So did she know? Yeah, she knew. Okay. Um, Because then he returned to his home, (laughs) like, not very long after, (laughs) which was pretty dumb. But then um, they decided to move permanently to Panama, and of course they had trouble acquiring visas for that, so eventually he just flew back to London and he like self-surrendered at a police station, but then said he was suffering from amnesia and like couldn't remember who he was. <laughs> um, that didn't work. The couple were sentenced to six years in prison um, for their insurance fraud, and actually their story was made into a film by the BBC in 2010, and it was called Canoe Man. <laughs> so we should watch that. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, so he did it on purpose, but what if someone just, like, I don't know, their note that they left on the counter fell off the counter and blew away, and they just, like, went camping, and no one realized they were gone and, like, thought they... Like, I could also see it happening where someone didn't fake their own death, but everyone believes mm. that they're dead, and they just, like, come back a week later, and they're like, uh, what's going on? <laughs> Yeah, why are you buying that casket for me? <laughs> yeah, like, the canoe was gone because I was in it. Or something, like, <laughs> just I took an extended trip, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you research? So, also in the epilogue, when they were talking about how to, like, memorialize the Nassian people, and they put up these, like, statues all over the country to, like, or mirror statues or whatever, mm-hmm. that made me think about, ways we memorialize people and at first I started researching again what we do for people (laughs) until I got to the part where um sometimes they turn the ashes into beads and I was like no we've done this twice now so I had to switch tactics again um but I just like couldn't believe myself uh (laughs) so then I did a couple of things okay first I looked into how to survive being drowned Oh, tell me that. I'm so scared of drowning. So there's this retired Navy SEAL named Clint Emerson who wrote this whole book, which I want to read, called 100 Deadly Skills, The SEAL Operative's Guide to Eluding Pursuers, Evading Capture, and Surviving Any Dangerous Situation. Whoa, I need to read that. I know. It sounds kind of awesome. But uh, so SEAL training is really, really hard, and very few people even make it through the training who qualify to go into the training and even those people don't all become seals but a lot of what they do a lot of their training starts in the water whether it's um, standing waist deep in a cold pool or 
jumping out of a helicopter into the ocean or whatever it is. And in a lot of their training, their hands and feet are tied and they have to like get themselves to the surface and stuff. Um, So he actually has like all these diagrams of what you should do. So you should look it up. But the the main thing that you need to try to do if you are drowning and your hands and feet are tied especially is control your breathing. So things like hyperventilating are going to make you drown faster. Okay. So when you have air in your lungs, you're more likely to float. But sinking to the bottom of the pool, because it's like um, you're just more buoyant. So like if you breathe water, I mean, if you breathe air in, it'll help you float more. But if you breathe air out, it'll help you sink better. Okay, that makes sense. Especially in the case where Sal was like in a river, they probably should have, I forget what they actually did. I know they survived. I guess they untangled themselves and stuff. But there's this thing called the bottom bounce. So you would exhale. So you sink so that you're going down toward the bottom of the water. And then when you're down there, you like crouch and use the bottom of the floor to push yourself up. Mm-hmm. And then when you break the surface, that's when you breathe in again. Yeah, but what if it's like 50 feet deep? I know. So that doesn't work <laughs> in the ocean, for example, usually. Okay. <laughs> so then the other option is basically, I'm trying to describe this picture. Okay, so you, you want to be floating, but in this picture, it's it's like a man, his face is in the water and his back is along the top of the water and his feet are underneath him, but his hands are tied behind his back and his feet are tied together. So you want to bend your knees and kick the body back, arching your back, Mm -hmm. which should push your head out and allow you to catch a breath of air real quick. Mm, Okay. And then when you exhale, you should bend your knees back in and you can kind of like propel yourself this way while still getting water. Getting water? I mean, sorry, while well, still getting air. Oh, okay. <laughs> you don't want to get water. I'm sorry. That was. I'm looking at a lot of water in these diagrams. Um. So yeah. So the arching your back can help you raise your head above the water, but I think you also have to be really strong to do that, to yeah. be honest. But using this method, you can like kick yourself towards sh- shore while breathing. But okay. then the other alternative would be to flip yourself over in this case. And then your head is facing up and you can breathe and try and kick backwards. But I think it's really hard because if your hands are tied behind your back to keep your head above water that way. But that's another option. So, yeah, that was part of what I learned. And then I'll keep that in mind if I ever go swimming and run into trouble. Because then then I was like, technically the drowning happened in the first half of this book. So it's completely unrelated (laughs) to the story at this point, Katie. (laughs) It still counts. Well, I was kind of intrigued by this whole public trial idea that Mm. Riparian and Winter were experiencing. And so I looked up, and I've thought about this before, because you've heard about the phrase, like, a citizen's arrest, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But, like, I didn't, like, how do you do one? Or, like, what does that mean? I didn't really know. So I looked up, how do you make a citizen's arrest? (laughs) (laughs) And I actually didn't find an article, a reliable article about the U.S. So this is a Canadian article but I think a lot of the same stuff applies there's like a lot of what I was reading a lot of debate over whether you can really do a citizen's arrest in the U.S. according to different laws I've only seen it in like tv shows I know and I have too and I was like is that a thing you can actually do and like who can you do it to and how does that work and like I don't know so according to this Canadian article um whenever possible you should just call the police and not do anything (laughs) because they're the ones who are trained to do things let them do it for you but uh Assuming that that's not an option and it's, like, 
necessary that someone does something about it right then, here's some things that you should do. Okay. So first you should tell the suspect plainly that you are making a citizen's arrest and that you are holding him or her until police arrive. Then you should call the police. You should ask explicitly for his or her cooperation until police arrive. You should avoid using force, if at all possible, and use it to the minimum possible otherwise. What if they just run away? I know. This is where... And you can't question them or search them, so you're only allowed to, like, temporarily detain them while the police are on their way. She's like, I'm arresting you. Just stay put. I know, right? How is this ever going to work? And also, you are only allowed to do this if you find them in the act of committing a crime, like, in that moment. Like, mm-hmm. you have to, like, witness them doing it. Yeah. Um. So... Exactly. I'm like, so, okay, you took someone's purse. I saw you. I'm just going to, like, go up and politely tell you, like, actually, ma'am, I'm calling the police. And you're, so it didn't really make a lot of sense. So then I got bored of that. There is this group, though. Basically, every article I found about a citizen's arrest was just, like, don't do it. But there's this group, and I want to look into them more eventually, called, they just call themselves crime fighters. Ooh, like vigilantes almost. Yeah, so they have a guide to how to do a citizen's arrest, and, like, they're also talking about, like, when you're on vacation, make sure you check the local laws, and da-da-da. But um, I'm very curious what else they have on their their website later on. But uh, then I looked into special forces, like, guard, unique guard organizations from around the world. Okay. Because then I was thinking about the left hand now has kind of molded into this, so basically, I didn't do any in-depth research, and I just kind of kept Googling random stuff. <laughs> so what else is new? But, okay, so these are some of the most lethal special ops units from around the world. Ooh. So, and I feel like we've talked about some of this stuff before. Like, I was reading about some ancient things. Like, um, remember that Greek group that were all asexual? Or no, um, they would have a relationship with their trainer and that whole I'm trying to remember that samurai no it wasn't the samurais it was like in ancient Greece we read about them it was like a bunch of same-sex couples where like the older one developed a romantic relationship with the younger one and like taught them everything that they knew and they were like extremely bonded in battle and oh I don't remember this I I basically I just did a lot of really weird research but (laughs) here are some some other groups so have you heard of China's Snow Leopard Commando Unit? No, that sounds amazing, though. It used to be the Snow Wolf Commando Unit because it was named after the Arctic wolves and their ability to survive in crazy circumstances. Um, and when it was first started, they spent five years training in secret to conduct, um, basically preparing for the 2008 Summer Olympics. So they were training <gasps> on counterterrorism, riot control, anti-hijacking, and bomb disposal. Oh, okay. And... They are supposed to be extremely good marksmen, um, have a lot of strength and stamina and other things you would assume in a group like this. Um, And each recruit must serve in the People's Armed Police for one to two years before undergoing the physical and psychological tests to see if they could even qualify to compete for this. Oh my god, I would love to see that test. I know, right? And by love to see, I mean, I don't put me anywhere near that. Right, exactly. (laughs) And then, let's see... Britain has the special boat service, which is kind of like their version of the Navy SEALs. Hmm. And their selection process has a 90% failure rate (gasps) and includes a four-week endurance test that grows more challenging. And at the end, you have a 40-kilometer, which is 24.8-mile 
march that you have to complete in under 20 hours oh i can do that i think yeah under 20 (laughs) hours yeah that's like a mile an hour it's more than a mile an hour and i think you have to do it after four weeks of ongoing tests that are challenging your endurance like i think it's not like you're doing it like you get a good night's sleep you eat all your pasta and then you head out on this thing. <laughs> there's no carb <laughs> carbo loading before <laughs> that's not the impression i wonder can i have uh, my ipod or my ipod my iphone <laughs> sure and like a playlist that i can listen to while i'm doing it and you know, some snacks and a, on a back in a backpack. <laughs> yeah, that's all they have to do. But, okay. And then you're basically ready for the Royal Navy's special boat service. <laughs> well, I just got back actually yesterday from Iceland, and we did a ton of hiking and walking around. And that just made me think of it because we literally like hiked all day, every day, and it was amazing. Um, but because it like never gets dark there, like we went on like midnight hikes. We went on on hikes at midnight because it was just still super sunny so yeah. I feel like I could hike for a long time well I spent a summer in Alaska where it also basically didn't get dark and we would there was a day where we did 20 hours basically of backpacking and it's the only time in my life where I've cried because I physically can't not cry can it like anymore? it wasn't even I wasn't even like sad or like emotional I just like that was like oh, my no. body's physical reaction to what I was doing to it was I oh, just started no. like crying not like sobbing <laughs> but just like crying it was the weirdest yeah I remember like being like what is happening to me right now like I'm still walking I'm fine but yeah the body oh, but but again the bot we talked about this last week it's amazing what you can do if you're like the kind of person who's super determined and your life's at stake or, you know, yes, like the, that's very true. so I think a lot of, I think that's a lot of the people who succeed in these environments too, especially when, you know, you're in like these endurance tests and stuff, it's supposed to break you. And if you can just stay focused on the task at hand, then, I mean, obviously you also have to be able to do the task at hand. It's not just that, but I think a large, I think there's a huge <laughs> mental portion of it too. That makes sense. A lot of them are the same, you know, they're all like 90 to 95% of people can't survive this test. And there's all kinds of tests from, uh, swimming this amount and doing this many push-ups and pull-ups and all this stuff in a certain amount of time to, you know, the marksmanship stuff to just, like, endurance training. I feel like I could do that portion of the test, but maybe just that portion of the test. Just the walk? The, mm-hmm. the walking one, yeah. I think I could, but I would never do that. <laughs> well, yeah, because also I wouldn't want to be in that unit because I would be useless. Actually, oh my gosh, when we were, so also when we were in Iceland, we went to this uh, black sand beach that had four stones on it, and the stones were, they ranged in size from like 50 pounds, then the next one was 100 pounds, the other one was wow. 200 pounds, and it went up to like 400 pounds or something like that, and back in the day, sailors, in order to like prove their strength... And determine, um, you know, what unit they were oh put goodness. in. They had to lift these rocks. And the first rock was called useless. <laughs> and the second one was called weakling. The third one was called half strength. And then the last one was called full strength. And it, like, determined where you were positioned. Um, I lifted the first one. <laughs> so I was useless. I feel like even useless I'd really struggle with, so... Yeah, I did. And then Rachel and Allison both lifted the second one, so they they were weaklings. But then Allison, out of nowhere, freaking lifted the third one, which was like 200 pounds. 
Like, I have no oh, idea man. how she did it, but she, like, blew us all away. She was just like, yeah, I got this. No problem. And she <laughs> freaking lifted a 200-pound rock. That's amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. We have the coolest friends, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Very wow. strong friends, too. I didn't even know that. They all have, like, these hidden secret talents that they just whip out at the most opportune moments. So, yeah. I also looked up weird, like, trials. I did all kinds of weird research this week, but I think that's enough interesting facts for okay. for this book series. What do you think? Yeah, because we need to talk about the next series. Well, first we need to rate this series. Okay. What are we rating it out, out of? of? Out of left hands? Out of five? Or left? Yeah. Or I guess there's only four. But, yeah. Let's do five, because it'll be fingers on the left hand. <laughs> I rated it four on Goodreads, four, four stars out of five stars. Okay. My Goodreads are always weird because I have, like, this system in my head. So I rated it a three, but that's not actually a three out of five. So I think out of five, I think 3.5 or four. Okay. I um, And I think my biggest complaint is just that I actually wanted more. That's a good complaint. Or, like, wanted more of this backstory stuff. So yeah. I think that's a good thing. I there were a lot of things I really liked about it and I thought it was really unique yes I did too I liked the setup so much um I really liked mm-hmm. the character of Sal um I liked Elise Maud was my favorite but Sal oh yeah too. and and I really just love the idea of the left hand and like I wish we had learned more about the assassins and the their different I wish we got to see more of their different personalities um so yeah it's always good when a book leaves you wanting more yeah and I thought I mean again the bad guys were interesting and the political intrigue there's a lot going on so I'm curious to see what else Lindsay Miller comes out with oh me too 100% cool all right should we talk about our next book yes next series yes so it is a quadrology (laughs) it is a quadrology we are reading three dark crowns by Kendar Blake there's also a prequel or something or maybe a short story something that's already out as well so there's three books out right now the fourth one comes out in september early september yep and yep. there is also a either short story or some other related tiny book yeah there's um the queens of fenburn the young queens and the oracle queen okay yeah so i love short stories yay i wish there were short stories for mask of shadows honestly i was like expecting there to be some so i was kind of sad when there weren't well, and we talked about because we thought that maybe Ruby's audition would be in book two, and I'm really glad yeah. it wasn't. I like that it was like kind of a completely different story with the same characters because that was kind of refreshing. But also, part yeah. of me wanted to just see another assassin trial. So, um, yeah, it would have been fun to like see that happen. Again. Yeah, do that again. <laughs> okay. Well, do you want to hear a little bit about Three Dark Crowns? Yes, please. When Kingdom Come, there will be one. In every generation on the island of Fenburn, a set of triplets is born. Three queens, all equal heirs to the crown, and each possessor of a coveted magic. Mirabella is a fierce elemental, able to spark hungry flames or vicious storms at the snap of her fingers. Catherine is a poisoner, one who can ingest the deadliest poisons without so much as a stomach ache. Arsinoe, a naturalist, is said to have the ability to bloom the reddest rose and control the fierce of lions. But becoming the queen crowned isn't solely a matter of royal birth. Each sister has to fight for it, and it's not just a game of win or lose, it's life or death. The night the sisters turn 16, the battle begins. The last queen standing gets the crown. What? (laughs) Oh man, I think I'm going to really like this. 
Yeah, because you have three sisters. Well, you have two I know. sisters. Oh, I, yeah. love, I love sibling relationships, but... Me too. But they have to kill each other? Is that what the implication is? Yep, sounds like it. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's rough. I wonder what they're like at the beginning. Like, I wonder if they're friends or if they've grown up, like, hating each other because they know they have to kill each other. I feel like you can't be friends. But usually, if you're, like... The only three royal people. I don't know. I also feel like there's something that bonds you, right? Like just being a sister and being like no one else can relate to you. I mean, we'll see, I guess. Yeah. Um, and let's read up to Starfall Lake for next week. Okay. It's about halfway. Sounds good to me. Oh, man. Well, I'm excited to start this. Me too. I hope the magic is good. Magic always makes me a little nervous. Oh, I know. I hope it's like a good magic system. Um, do you have a joke for me this week? Oh, I thought it was your turn. No, because remember I spoiled the punchline. But I did the I did the potato joke last week. Oh shoot, you're right. <laughs> I, can, oh, no. I can tell you one though. I think I have one. I think I have one. I just have to find it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you're totally right. I can't believe I missed that. It's all good. It gets confusing when we're like reading, recording, and posting it different. <laughs> okay, I have a good one. Okay. It's always good if you're laughing before you start telling it. What's the loudest pet you can get? Um, an owl? <laughs> what? A trumpet. <laughs> That's stupid. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, here's another one. <laughs> what do you call a lonely cheese? Um, solo... I don't know. What? I love it <laughs> it's so funny I feel like all week I like hear jokes and I'm like oh I need to remember this for our podcast and then half the time I don't have one ready to go but those are good ones uh, if you want to get in touch with us and tell us a dad joke of your own um, you can write to us at mnktalkya at gmail.com or you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at mnktalkya. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. MNK Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.